0: Sean, go ahead and come up here, and I'm going to just say a few words since... All right, give him a big hand. Absolutely. Most people do know you, but I want to uh, fill in some of the gaps for those who don't. Uh, Sean Ellis was uh, a young man, a teenager. When I first came as youth pastor back in 1988, and he was actually the smartest knucklehead I've ever met. And uh, he he was, uh, uh, you know, not real open uh, to spiritual things at the time, and the Lord had to get a hold of his heart later on, and he did. And so much so, he said, Lord, wherever you want me to go or do, I'll do it. So this family has been uh, pursuing through YWAM and other ministries and churches uh, a a going ministry, surrendering wherever God sends them, and that—that that is a level of surrender that we want to remember and honor, that people leave their home, their families, and homeland for uh, to go and obey, to go make disciples, to go to, uh, of all nations, it's obedience to God's Word and the call in their lives. So thank you, Sean, Katie, and family, for your sacrifices over these years. And uh, the Lord continue to bless you for it. And um, we've always, when they're in... Uh, Kentucky want to get Sean uh, preaching for us because he's such an excellent Bible teacher. And when I told him, and he knew, he, he follows us online that we are in the David series, and we were talking about it. You know, he, he was excited to be a part of this series here, and the Lord got him in there. Let me pray for you, Sean. Well, Lord Jesus, today uh, we are here with open ears to your spirit we believe and, and believe that, without a doubt, you're going to speak to us through Sean, through the scriptures, and with that, Lord God, we're going to leave here built up and have direction from you. Uh, Lord God, we believe, Lord God, in your blessing over the Ellis family this year, uh, in this year of transition, that you're going to provide for them, you're going to um, give them lasting fruit in Taiwan, Lord God, and Father, that, Lord, you have so many good things for them in this transition and their future, and we bless them for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I want to
1: kind of get one thing out of the way uh, right off the bat. As I have welcomed people and seen people this morning, they said, wow, you really don't look like that picture that they put into the bulletin for this week. I want to thank Stephen. I had to slip him a little extra money to put a very old picture of me. So that's the way I like to remember myself in my mind. You know, the mirror is an unfortunate reminder uh, that that time is a long, long time ago. That was when I was about 37 years old. It was when we had first moved to the nation of Taiwan. And now we have been in that country for 13 years and uh, this thing on my face, which I call my Kentucky camouflage, uh, will tell you how long we've been there, because there's a lot more, uh, not more salt than pepper uh, these days, and that uh, the Lord has been so faithful to us there in Taiwan, and, uh, and as Stephen said, over the 30 years that we've uh, had the blessing of doing missionary work for God. Well, we are here for a specific reason this time, it's always a blessing to be back in Kentucky and with family and with our home church here at Living Waters. Uh, but I had the opportunity just to be back last year, of course, after the pandemic. We're grateful for any visit and any travel that we are able to do again. But we are specifically here this time, as Stephen said, uh, to drop off our baby. Uh, that's right, uh, after 27 years 27 years of having kids at home. I think I've got a, a picture here next of the family. Uh, let's see, I think it may be next up. There we go. It's been 27 years, 27 years of diapers, 27 years of back to school and parent-teacher conferences and meetings, 27 years of nagging kids to do homework, 27 years of... Soccer momming for Katie and taking them to all the sporting events and cheering for them and being embarrassed because I was cheering too loudly and yelling at the referees. Twenty seven years of us, you know, trying to get them to go to bed and now them trying to get us to go to bed because we've fallen asleep on the couch again and they have to wake us up and put us to bed. Right? Twenty seven years of being parents and And just uh, next week, uh, on the 14th, we'll drive up to the University of Kentucky, and we will drop our baby, Kai, off, who's a little little bigger than maybe you remember him from past photos or his baby dedication here. And uh, we'll drop him off at school, and that'll be it. And Katie and I said, it's going to be the weirdest, most strange, odd feeling we're going to have when we get onto that airplane A day later and go back to Taiwan and it's just the two of us. And we're just going to probably look at each other and go, uh, now what do we do? (laughs) What do we do with this odd thing that people call free time? You know, what are we going to do with the weekends? It's going to be like a whole new season, a whole new chapter of our lives. Now, not only are we going to soon be empty nesters, but because we uh, had Kai leaving and it was just the two of us, then we had to move in a smaller apartment. So right at the same time that we're preparing to deal with all of this, we moved uh, again. Um, I said, if I ever wrote an autobiography of my time as a missionary, the title I've been kicking around is Life in a Box, because we have just put our stuff into a box, out of a box, into a box, out of a box, so many different times. And in fact, The apartment that we are moving out of, uh, that we just moved out of, we had been in it for the longest time in our 30 years of marriage, and it was six years. So six years was the longest we had been in just one apartment, one place. And so we just, you know, when you load up all your stuff, there's all the memories, there's the kids' heights on the wall, there's dad's heights, there's the son's heights, right, on the walls as they grew. I kind of look back in nostalgia to when I was the tallest in the family. A long, long time ago. That's why I like that family photo where we're all sitting down. I just requested from now on, all family photos are us sitting down because I've got a really long torso. So, right, so we we just had to move. So then that's another thing. We're getting used to uh, a new apartment. In the midst of all of this, uh, I think many of you know the political situation of the nation that we serve in, the nation of Taiwan, because it's been much more prevalent in the news. And people have been talking about Taiwan, talking about what's happening with China. And in fact, when I come back to visit, the question I get most often is, how do we deal with that? You know, how do we deal with the fact that just a few miles across an ocean is this huge nation that is intent on retaking the nation of Taiwan and is all kinds of preparations are being made to invade militarily. And so every day, this is like the report's. It's not how many helicopters, spy planes, or ships will cross into Taiwan's territorial space, you know, it's just how many. Is it going to be 27 today? Is it going to be 32? How close are they going to get to the country? Are they going to be up north? Are they going to be down south? They just closed our airspace uh, one afternoon, all the flights had to stop. And, And so how do you have a sense of peace and security when that's your next door neighbor? You don't really feel settled, you know, it's kind of like a noise in the, in the back of your mind. And the interesting thing is, it's hard to communicate to people that in Taiwan, we just go on about our everyday lives. You know, every day people are going to Starbucks and sitting around and drinking a latte and every day people go to school and every day we have, you know, church activities and people become Christians and, and so if you just visited Taiwan, you'd never know that this attack could be imminent that basically every day there's a report of, oh, it's going to happen in 2026. No, oops, we were wrong, probably 2025. Now 2024, right? In your calendar, you're marking it down. <laughs> and and we don't know. You know, we keep a go bag. We keep a bag ready just in case, you know, things turn ugly and and the United States takes us out of the country or the Lord tells us it's time to go. And so all of this together, you know, going to be empty nesters moving our apartment you know new season in life you know china potentially invading i think it all makes you makes me feel like i don't have peace like i don't have security and it makes me want to ask the question where's my home and what is home because I think to most of us, the word home is that word that, that gives us that feeling of comfort that tells us, oh, we're going to be someplace safe. There's someplace where we can kind of just settle, a place that we can be ourselves. And it's where our roots and, and everything is. And so for me, you know, is coming back to Kentucky is, is this it? And this is where, as Stephen said, this is where I grew up. This is uh, the church where uh, I, I went to and was discipled, and this is the church I was commissioned and sent out. It's where our kids uh, were dedicated to the Lord. Uh, this is the place that my family lives here in Kentucky. Uh, I call it the promised land, right? This is, is this my home? You know, Is that what I'm coming back to potentially next year, or, or, or where is it? Is Taiwan my home? I've lived there for 13 years. You know, for 13 years we've uh, planted a church, we built up the church. We see God releasing people into their ministry. We've seen people baptized, right? And 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 for Kai, he's been there since he was about five years old. I think Taiwan is home. This this is a foreign country, <laughs> you know, and he's having to learn the culture and get used to that. So is is Taiwan our home? Right? What what is our home? And if something is moving us, is, if something is making us feel unsettled, if, if we feel like we can't sleep or we can't eat because of all the stress that we're feeling from lacking security and, and that peace, then where do we find our home? And I think this is why I asked Stephen if I could do this message about the story of David and what happened to him at a little village called Ziklag, because David has to answer that question for himself. It is I think, to me, when I look at the life of David, this is one of the worst moments of his life. One of the worst moments of his life. And in that worst moment of his life, it's a test of his character. It's a test of his relationship with God. It's a test of where is he going to turn to for that peace and that security that the world was not offering him. So we're going to have to back up just a little bit. I know that um, chronologically, you've already gone past this part of uh, for the end of 1 Samuel. You're already into 2 Samuel, and right now you are getting to enjoy the time when uh, David is finally uh, taken up his role as the king. He was anointed a long time ago in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and you studied that story and got to talk about his great defeat of the giant Goliath, and uh, he waited a long time, but you know, uh, 2 Samuel, really from chapters 1 through 10, tell us the story of how he comes into his power. He consolidates that power. He unites the tribes of Israel. He defeats all of their foreign enemies one at a time, and he's kind of on top of the world at chapter 10. Unfortunately, there's chapter 11, and Stephen's going to tell you that sad story next week. But just before that, Right when you look at all the success and bringing the Ark of the Lord into Jerusalem and just everything that's happening in Second Samuel, you forget what happened right at the end of First Samuel, that the success of Second Samuel is preceded by a couple of the worst chapters in his life that I I guarantee he would rather forget, because even after he was anointed king, he had to run for his life. He had some quick success you know, defeating Goliath and defeating the Philistines. And yet Saul grew jealous of his fame. He grew jealous of his power. There was an evil spirit that came on him. And instead of going right into his kingship, the next part of 1 Samuel is he's just on the run. He has to literally run for his life. And he is hiding out in the wilderness where there are a lot of Unsavory characters, and he becomes the leader of these unsavory characters who become his mighty warriors eventually. And he's just going from cave to field to wilderness and back. And Saul is constantly trying to kill him. And in fact, things get so bad for David, he has to consider the most extreme option something that he probably would have never thought would have happened to him when he was that little shepherd boy being anointed as king. And that comes to us in chapter 27, starting in verse 1. So chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, verses 1 through 2. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Though the best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left went over to Achish, son of Maoch, king of Gath. That, that is an extreme option. <laughs> I mean, think about the Philistines for a moment and the story that they have played in the book of Judges and the story that they have played even in David's own life. For the last 100 years, the Philistines have been their worst enemy. Like going all the way back really to the time of Jephthah. In the book of Judges, in chapters 10 and 11, they were already begin to, beginning to oppress the Israelites, and they had, uh, of course, uh, a much more advanced military force. They had uh, figured out the use of different metal uh, working that the Israelites had not figured out, and so that oppression, it just went on and on and on, and none of the judges were able to deliver them from the Philistines. You know, Jephthah didn't do it. We know for sure, Sam, Samson sure didn't do it. And so when the book of Judges ends and we go into Samuel's time, they are still being oppressed by the Philistines. And the Philistines even take the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, Saul's not able to deliver them for the Philistines. And so this has been their most hated enemy for the last hundred years. I mean, think about it. David killed Goliath. He killed their best, tallest, baddest warrior and then it says he went out and killed his tens of thousands. It says Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. So he's been out there slaughtering them and doing uh, things to get his wife, like taking their foreskins. People tend to not like you when you do that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Does not make you popular. So you've got to uh, understand that the Philistines would have hated David. Like he's, you know, Israelite bad guy number one. They would love to see him hung up and skinned. Not uh, uh, just to mention that, but also David's already tried this one time before. When he was so desperate on the run from King Saul, he went to Gath. That's where Goliath was from, by the way. So he went to Gath and he kind of threw himself on the mercy of King Achish and they tried to kill him and the only way that he escaped was to act like a crazy person. He had to act insane, and then they let him run away. But this time he comes back, and I think it must have been well known that he had fallen out of favor with Saul, that Saul was trying to kill him. So Achish is much more open to receiving David's services. Him and his 600 fighting warriors were to become mercenaries for the Philistines. Now, uh, what they basically, He did then is they gave him a village. They said, Okay, King Achish said, You can take your six hundred fighting men and their families, and he gave them this little village called Ziklag. And, And probably there was not much there, but he said, This is yours, David. This is your new home. And so they set up their tents, they deposited all the loot that they had gained during that time when they were running around the wilderness and basically started their new jobs as mercenaries for a Gentile idol-worshiping enemy king. Uh, I think this is what we call the quintessential choice of two evils, (laughs) right? Like, this, this is the only two options that he feels that he has. He's like, I can either stay in Israel, keep running around the wilderness, probably end up being killed by Saul... Like, he's already had the opportunity to kill Saul twice, and he didn't do it. We'll come back to that later. So he's not going to do that. That's not an option to David at all, just to kill Saul and be done with it and take the kingship by force. So he's either like, I just keep trying to hide, running around, and eventually I'm going to probably be caught and killed and slaughtered and all my men and their families, or behind door number two, I can head on over to our worst enemies who are worshiping idols they hate me, but they're going to allow me to be a mercenary, and the inevitable clash is going to happen where they're going to go to war against Israel again. And then what's David going to do? Because he's a mercenary to this Philistine king. And and I think he would have loved to have had a third option. <laughs> he's like, really, that it? That That is the two choices I have in my life? You know, I can either be on the run, probably be killed, or work for this evil, idol-worshipping Gentile enemy king. And, and, and that is a place that I think many of us, unfortunately, find ourselves in our lives. And the place that we find ourselves is trapped. We would love to have a third option in our life. You know, the, the workforce uh, kind of environment in Taiwan is not very friendly. Most people uh, in Taiwan only make about $1,200 a month. And they're expected to work 50, 60 hours, sell their soul to their boss and basically be there and do whatever the boss wants to do. And 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 yet people know, like, I have to support my family. I'd love to quit. <laughs> I'd love to quit my job right now. But I need that money to buy food or to pay for our apartment. And not only do they think that, but they think, if I quit, how's it going to be any better? Because then I'll probably just end up at another company or with another boss they're going to act the exact same way. There is no option three, where suddenly I win the lottery, or option three, where, you know, uh, I don't ever have to work again, or option three, where there's a great boss who loves me and gives me encouragement every day and pays me, you know, 18 times what I was making before. You know, some people at our church find themselves trapped in relationships. uh, Many of the people at our church, they're new believers, They became Christians as adults, which means that many of the women in our church that are Taiwanese are married to non-Christian husbands, and they do not have peace or stability in their homes. Sometimes there's religious conflict because the husband is still going to the temple he still uh, has the God shelf in his house. He still wants to honor and venerate the ancestors. He may even support the local goddess Matsu, whose parade comes through the streets and uh, is one of the largest uh, like temples near Taichung City. And they parade her around and they go and they worship there and give her offerings and sacrifices. Um, and so it, there may be no peace in their home whatsoever. Taiwan has a horrible problem with domestic violence because it's a culture that saves face. And what that means is out in public, right? Out in public, you you need to be respectable. Out in public, you don't talk about your issues. And then as soon as that door closes, though, everything just breaks loose. And so domestic violence happens, but it's not discussed or talked about or dealt with. And so I know these people, they feel trapped in that relationship, and they would love to have a way out that's easy. But they say, if, if I'm going to get a divorce or something like that's going to happen, then I'll have all the legal issues because the kids almost always go to the husband there. Or then, you know, I may never get to see my children again, or I'm going to have all of this, you know, conflict in my life. And so there is no great third option for them. where And they've tried counseling. They've tried to get their husband to come to church. You know, they've tried to have reconciliation, and it just, it's, it's never there for them. And so in these moments of our lives, whether it's our work environment or whether it's a family relational situation for you, you can feel basically like you have no way out and and there's no hope for you in this situation. And in that moment, what I want to tell you this morning, what I believe God wants to tell you is Jesus is your home. Jesus is your home. So even though David really didn't have a great option, he didn't have option number three, he knew that the only thing that he could rely on in that moment was his relationship with God. And as Stephen took you through some of the most beautiful and powerful psalms of David a few weeks ago, you saw that that's where he turned. I mean, it's out here in the wilderness that he wrote many of these psalms as he was struggling. And maybe in this very moment, we don't know, he might have written one of these psalms and said, this is it. This is my only source of peace and security. It can't be in our jobs. It can't be in our relationships. It can't be in our finances. The only place where we can have true stability, a true home, true comfort in our lives is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means that Jesus is our home in the best sense of the word of what home should mean to us. Now, I would like to tell you that after this moment, David's life got miraculously better. It did not. (laughs) If you think at this moment that David's life could not have gotten worse, you would be wrong. Because as we read further in 1 Samuel, his life definitely got worse. As I said, inevitably, the Philistines were going to attack the Israelites. They were going to go out in force and destroy the armies of King Saul. See, King Saul had started to have victory. King Saul had victory under his son, Jonathan. They started to take back some of the fortifications of the Philistines. And now it's time to go in mass, all the Philistine tribes together, and they are gonna crush these pesky Israelites. And so now they turn to David and they say, you're going with us. Now think about that for a moment. What would you do if you were David and his 600 fighting men? You have just been called to duty. You have been ordered to march out, and you are going to have to go out and fight against your own people. And potentially, he would be just like mano a mano. He'll be just across the way, maybe even from Jonathan, looking across and seeing his best covenant friend right there staring him in the face. Now, what options does he have? You know, now what is he going to do? Now, we don't know what David would have done if they'd made it all the way to the battle. There's some biblical scholars who think when they got out there, he would have, you know, done the old brave heart thing and switched over to the other side and joined the Israelites and fought against the Philistines. You know, we don't know. He had used his role as a mercenary very creatively, let's just say that, to destroy a lot of his enemies that were around the area of Judah and his old family. Um, so we don't know what he would have done because basically halfway there, all the Philistines, they're looking around and they go, uh, we're not taking this guy to battle. (laughs) And all the commanders came to King Achish and said, we can't trust this guy. He is an Israelite. He has killed Goliath. He's killed thousands of Philistines, taken their foreskins. I don't feel comfortable with him guarding my back. So let's send this guy back. So the king comes to him and says, you take all your men and you go back to Ziklag. And David did at least was spared of that decision of what to do if he had to go out and fight his own people. Now, he makes it back to Ziklag, and this is what he discovers when he gets there. So, uh, this is now into uh, chapter 30, verses 3 through 6a. Now, when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and after their... Uh, by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Man, this guy, he just cannot catch a break. His life definitely got worse because when they got back to Ziklag, they discovered that another people group called the Amalekites, which is a nomadic people group lived out in the desert, had come in and raided this entire area and then had taken the village of Ziklag, taken everybody alive. They didn't kill the women or children or old people, they were taking them as possessions or as slaves. They took everything that David and his men had built up in their riches or their worldly possessions. And then they burnt the place down to the ground so that there was absolutely nothing left, but a smoking pile of ash when David and his men returned to Ziklag. And, you try to imagine David's emotional state when he came back and he found this. Because he had already lost his true home. He had been on the run for years by that time because of King Saul trying to kill him. And then not only had he lost his true home there in Jerusalem and near Bethlehem and where his family was, then he had to leave his whole country So now he's lost Israel, and he's living in the Philistine territories, and Ziklag is kind of like his temporary home, (laughs) you know? So this is all he's got left are a couple of these tents, this old Philistine village that he'd been given, and now that's gone. And not only is that village gone, all their stuff, all their possessions, You know, he had been, you know, going around and fighting against the enemies of the Lord and his enemies and gaining those things. That's all gone. All his family are gone. I mean, you stop and think about that. Who cares about the tents or the stuff when you come back and realize that your wives and your children and all your family, they're gone. And you have no guarantee that they're alive. Yeah, we know that from the text. It says they took them all alive, but David and his men, they don't know that. They don't know that their women and their children and their grandfathers and grandmothers are still alive, and so they're facing that reality. And then and then it says David was, of course, greatly distressed. Now, there's an understatement, greatly distressed because of this, and his men want to stone him. So now not only has he lost his home, he's lost his stuff, he's lost his family, now he's lost the love and the respect and the trust of the men who are guarding his back over these years, his closest brothers in arms. They want to stone him to death because, of course, when we get in situations like this, we want to blame somebody else. You know, we we want someone to blame because it makes us feel better. And so all of the men are like, this is your fault, David. This whole situation wouldn't have happened if it weren't for you. Let's stone him. And David, this has to be one of the worst, lowest moments of his life. And if we were in that situation, what would we do? If we were in his situation in which he has no home and he has really no reason to have hope in his future, what would we do? And this is one of the most amazing things about David. David's not a perfect man. You're going to hear more about that next week. He made some very large, very costly mistakes that had horrible consequences on himself, on his family, on his people group. But at this one moment, what he does is an incredible challenge to us in our walk with the Lord, because it tells us in that next verse, when he had no sense of peace or security— He still felt like Jesus and his relationship with God was his home. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Just a few short verses, right? A few short words, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Other translations say, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Is that what we would do in a circumstance like this in our lives? Is that what I am doing in this circumstance in my life? You know, am I turning to the Lord first and strengthening myself in him because Jesus is my only true home? Now, Samuel doesn't tell us really, what does that look like? What does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord? All we know is of what he did. He called for the priest. He had the priest bring the ephod and he turned to the Lord in prayer. And he said, God, what should we do? Should we pursue Should we not pursue? Is there any chance of our family being alive? Are you going to give us victory? So prayer, it's so simple, right? It's such a simple thing to do that when we get in these tough situations, we have no home, we have no hope, we have no future, no security, we pray. It it just sounds too easy. It sounds too simple. And sometimes we want to run out, and I do. I want to fix the problem myself. I want to do everything I can do under my flesh, under my own power to solve that situation. And it's not until I am utterly desperate and broken that I'm like, okay, God, I guess I do need your help. Instead, David turned to the Lord first and said, let's pray. So how do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? It's not just with prayer. It's reading the word. It's when we read these stories, like what we're about to read happens in the rest of the story of Ziglag, that we have hope is when we read into Second Samuel and we see God fulfill his promises to David and put him on his throne, we have hope. It Maybe for you, it's listening to worship music. Maybe you just need to kind of get out uh, into nature and, and just put your headphones in and, and listen to worship music. And like they were sharing before, suddenly it's not just the words to a song. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Something the Lord does it, takes it from here to here and suddenly we have joy. It's, it's there. It wasn't there a moment ago, and it's not like our situation's just magically, bing, changed. Oh, option number three just came available, right? You just get that text, bing, oh, you've been awarded, you know, the $1 billion mega jackpot, you know, lottery thing, or whatever it is, right? It's not like that changes. It's something in our heart changes, And it's the Lord. It's only the Lord that can do that. He knew he would only find strength in his relationship with God. And whether that's praying, whether that's worshiping and dancing in the streets before the ark, you know, or whether that's just loving the law of the Lord, all of it together was how he found strength in this moment when he had no peace and no security. Jesus truly is our home. Now, the rest of the story... You can read on, you know, yourself, the Lord does give them victory over the Amalekites. They're able to rescue all their wives, all their children, and all their stuff, and then they were able to come back. And of course, we know the battle happens, and Saul and Jonathan are both killed, Uh, and then in the very next chapter, David becomes king. And so things, whoo, man, talk about a reversal of fortunes, talk about a change in his story when he could have just a few verses ago felt like, I've got no hope, I've got no future. Next thing he knows, he's sitting on a throne. I mean, it happened that quickly, but he couldn't know that at that moment when they made it finally back to Ziklag, that pile of ashes, and we're like, now what do we do? <laughs> we got our wives and our children back, but we're still, you know, waiting to find out what happened on the battlefield, and, uh, and, and is this really just going to be our future that we are mercenaries the Philistines. And I think at that moment, if I were David, what kind of questions would I be asking? Maybe I'd be thinking back on that story we talked about at the very beginning. Maybe I'd be thinking back to what happened when I was a little shepherd boy, and Samuel showed up at my home, and he poured that oil over my head, and he spoke out a prophetic promise over my life. Uh, you read that, but let's go back to it again. Chapter 16... Uh, verses one, and then verse 13. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as a king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Now, if we were David at this young age, And then what happens to him, again, in a very quick succession after this uh, anointing, is all success, right? He uh, gains success very quickly under Saul. He gets his favor. He goes out. He slaughters Goliath. And then his name starts to be spread all over the country. And he starts to go out and have victories in battle over the Philistines. And probably based on the stories he's read in Judges, he's like, I know what's going to happen. He had expectations of how the Lord was going to move. Because in those days, right, the Lord would raise up a judge, he'd raise up Deborah, he'd raise up Ehud, he'd raise up Jephthah, and then the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them, and they would go out, and they would win a decisive battle. And then after that decisive battle, the people would have rest. Sometimes they had rest for two generations, sometimes one generation, but they would have rest, and everything would be good in the land for that season that that judge was alive and ruling. And so I imagine that David thought after he killed Goliath, had his early victories, like, woohoo, the deliverance has begun, and I will be the Lord's deliverer. And it's only going to be a matter of time. I don't know how it's going to happen. Maybe, you know, Saul's going to choke on a chicken bone. Maybe he's going to trip and fall down into a latrine. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but he's going to be removed because the Lord's not going to let this evil-spirited jerk Sit on the throne when he's already told me that I'm the next king. The Lord's gonna take care of that, and any day now I'm gonna stroll into Jerusalem and start building the palace. And it didn't happen. Right? Instead, he's on the run. Instead, he's living in caves. Instead, he is separated from his wife, he is separated from his best friend, right? He is surrounded by these brigands, by these, you know, kind of men who are outlaws. And then he's working for a Philistine king. And at that moment, if I were David, I would have one question, and that is, what are you doing, God? (laughs) Hello? (laughs) Did you forget about those promises you gave me? You know, I can quote it back to you. I think I wrote it down here somewhere. (laughs) I'm going to be king. Like, where are you? How in the world can this be your plan? You know, why would the wilderness time and me ending up working for the Philistines, and why didn't you protect my family at Ziklag? Okay, yeah, you let me have the wilderness time. Maybe that's discipleship training. I don't know what's happening with that. But like you knew I wasn't going to be a Ziklag. You knew the Amalekites were going to attack then. Why didn't you stop them? God could have snapped the fingers, right? Destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like that. He could have taken out a few Amalekites if he wanted to. He didn't do it. And so if I were David, I think one of the most troubling things wouldn't just have been, I don't have a home. Wouldn't just have been, I don't have hope. Wouldn't have just been, I don't have security. It would have been in that very relational struggle with his God going, what is happening? Did I really hear correctly? Is Samuel a false prophet? You know, is this just never going to happen? This is just going to be the rest of my life? Is going from tragedy to tragedy? Or where are you, God? And at the same exact time, all right? at the same exact time that David is seeking the Lord, strengthening himself in the Lord, calling for the priest and the ephod to be brought forth, it says, oh, by the way, this is what the king of Israel was doing. This is what the king of Israel was doing while David was seeking the Lord. And it said, When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or the Urim or prophets. That should have been a hello, wake-up call. But Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so that I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, which is not just a place in Star Wars. So here you've got David seeking the Lord. Even in the worst time when all of us would have been cursing God, all of us would have been strengthening ourselves in whatever way, through wine, through women, through violence, through all the ways that this world has to offer to try to entertain us, to distract us, that we think is going to give us strength, but really just continues to weaken us. And yet he doesn't do that. He turns to the Lord in prayer. And at the exact same time, the anointed of the Lord... King Saul, the guy that God is allowing, put on the throne, and then is allowing to stay on the throne, is off trying to find a witch, a medium, a spirit guide, because the Lord refuses to answer him. So he's like, oh, well, you know, I used to go out and take out witches and mediums and idolatry for the Lord, but eh, he won't answer me. So I guess that's where I'm going now, because I need a word of the Lord. Why? Because I'm Scared, I'm frightened. The whole Philistine army is facing me. So instead of strengthening himself in the Lord, he strengthened himself in the occult, in witchcraft. Right? And, and I know David doesn't know this now. <laughs> he would only probably hear this story later. But I can't imagine what happened when he did hear this story later. And he's like, What were you thinking? <laughs> Why did you even send Samuel to him? Like the Lord specifically answered Saul. And the witch appears completely baffled, right? She just expected to call up a demon or to fake it. Uh I've got a spirit here. He says, uh, don't worry, you're going to make it. The Philistines, okay, that is eight gold coins. Thank you. Ching! Right? And instead, the actual ghost of Samuel arrives on that scene and talks to Saul. And David would have been like, I'm out there in the desert with an ephod. Come on, man, <laughs> give me a break here. I've just got a piece of underwear, and you send the ghost of the true prophet who anointed me to go talk to, again, this evil-spirited, you know, disobedient king? What, what is happening? <laughs> and I think this is another place where we find ourselves often, right? We find ourselves wondering, what is God doing in our lives, and where is he? David found his strength in the Lord. What would it mean here? It must mean that somehow, some way in the midst of all of this stuff, he still trusted in God. How can he do that? How can he still trust in the sovereignty, in the control, and in the goodness of God based on what he has seen in the last years of his life? I don't know how he can do that. I hope to be there. I'd like to be there, but I'm not sure. Because we all have those questions of what is God doing? What is God doing in Taiwan? Is he really going to allow China to attack and take over the island where missionaries have been, you know, sowing the gospel and reaping a harvest, like literally for the last 400 years? And he's going to let China come over and do what they did to Hong Kong and just choke the gospel out of that land? If that happens, I'm going to have some questions. I'm going to wonder, God, where's your promises? What what were you speaking over my life? What were you speaking over our church? I guarantee you there are people maybe asking that here about living waters. I know because I've been here for a long time that God has spoken out some prophetic promises that we're still waiting to see come true about young leaders specifically, 232. And people are asking that question, well, is that, that a true prophecy of the Lord? God, what are you doing? This doesn't seem like we're moving in that direction. <laughs> and you could, of course, just like David, you would have been tempted to give up hope. You would have been tempted to just say, though, well, that wasn't a true word of the Lord because it's not working out the way that I think it should work out. And we just walk away. We leave the church. Maybe we leave our faith. Ain't David could have done that easily. Just said, I've just got to look out for myself because clearly God is not looking out over me. And yet David found his strength in the Lord to the point where he was unwilling to kill Saul by his own hand. That is some trust in the goodness and the sovereignty and the promises of God when you have Saul relieving himself in a cave. That is a very vulnerable, attackable position, right? You can think, well, what, what position could my enemy be in that would give me the best chance to kill him? Yeah, that's it. He's got him a little at a disadvantage as he is uncovering his feet, right? And he doesn't kill him. And he doesn't do it again because he says, I will not touch the Lord anointed. What what is he really saying? I trust God's plan. That's what he's saying. What? (laughs) Even after Ziklag? I trust God's plan. Now, he can't know that two chapters later he's going to be on that throne. David could not know that here, and yet he still strengthened himself in the Lord, and he still waited on the Lord's promises to come true. That was the word this morning, was it not? Those that wait upon the Lord, That's the beautiful verses out of the book of Isaiah, repeated again. Those that wait upon the Lord will see his salvation. Are we willing to trust in God and, and to wait and to see his promises fulfilled? So when you don't understand God's plan in your life, Jesus is your home. Jesus is your source of stability. He is the one that you trust when you say, I don't understand. I've got a lot of questions. I've got some doubts. But you are the only one that I can look to because you're on the throne yesterday, today, and forever. So as we think about all of these together, I don't know if any of these are you specifically. I really felt like the Lord put this whole message on my heart. And I feel like there are some of you who may feel like you are in one of these, or maybe, God bless you, all three. Right? You may feel like you are trapped by your life situation, and you've, you've got no way out. Right? You, you, there is no option three. And you just basically feel like you are choosing between that choice of two evils, whether it's your work or whether it's something in your relationship or your marriage or your family. And I'm here to tell you today, Jesus is your home. Jesus always cares for you. He is right there with you at work. He is right there in the middle of your marriage. He is your only chance for peace and stability in the midst of what you are experiencing. If you are someone who has no sense of security, you have no home, or you just don't have any hope for the future. You're like David there at Ziklag with the, you know, pile of ashes, you don't even know if your family's alive, you just don't have any hope. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your home, right? If you feel like you don't understand God's plan in your life or in your family's life, because I know many of you have been praying for children and grandchildren and and God's promises were spoken out over them when they were younger, Jesus, Jesus is your home. I think David had to come to that place when his relationship with God was all he had left. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as Stephen said, they're just going to have a few songs of worship. And if you feel like you are lacking peace and that stability, if you are wondering, God, where is my home? Is there a place that you can lead me to where I'll feel at rest because I'm just tired? I'm tired of having doubts. I'm tired of asking the questions. I'm tired of just feeling trapped in my life. Jesus, please help me come home today. Help me realize that, that you're all I need. Right? That's the song we were singing. You're all I need. So let me pray with you this morning. Lord Jesus, what an amazing example and challenge David is to us this morning that no matter what was happening in his life, he had no home, he had no family, he had no sense of hope for his future. He strengthened himself in the Lord. God, that's what we need this morning. We repent from times when we have tried to strengthen ourselves in the things of this world, when we have looked to material possessions, when we have looked to just entertainment, when we've looked to... Um, Sex or we've looked to drugs or alcohol to try to find our sense of comfort our stability our home We repent Jesus you are our home We belong to you You're waiting to take us to that heavenly place where there is a home prepared for each one of us And we want everyone to be there We want everyone to know this peace that we have, even in the midst of our life situation, so they would look at us and they would say, why, how are you able, as we question, how is David able to have peace and security and trust in the Lord? And we can tell them it's because Jesus died on the cross for us. We have the ultimate example and proof of his love for us. And we know that he will return. And he's going to take all of his people home our eternal home of peace Jesus you are our home
0: what I'm going to do is go ahead and ask the altar ministry teams to come down here Uh, they're available for prayer uh, for anything going on in your life Uh, Sean's going to be down here in the front if you would like him to pray for you and Um, and we've had just some sweet times of worship after uh, the message this last couple weeks so I I asked Julia to be available for a couple more songs uh, today Um, but boy wow thank you Sean that Jesus is our home Jesus is our home despite the circumstances But despite our feelings hmm. Jesus we see your eyes and they're full of love and compassion for us we see your eyes and they're full of hope and security in you they're not full of anxiety they're not full of worry Lord it Just we can trust you as we look into your eyes so I'm going to encourage people to feel free to stay here and worship I know I'm going to be leaving and with those that are going to have that foundations uh, informational meeting um, we'll be meeting in the gathering place here by the sofas and, uh, and if you need to leave um, uh, for whatever reason and that's fine too And uh, so let me bless you Father thank you that this week you have blessings for us into this week And that as we keep our eyes on you, that we see you as as our home, Lord God. We can have a week of peace in our heart and mind, despite chaos or storms around us. So Lord Jesus, Prince of Peace, we look to you and your blessing of grace and peace this week. Amen.